Good Evans, it's a Bobcast. Welcome to episode 39. I'm your host, Bob Evans, although I go by the name Kevin Mitchell most of the time. How are you going? Thanks for dropping in again. If you've been here before, if you have not, welcome to my podcast where I have I have informal chats with friends and acquaintances, mostly from the Australian music industry, but not always, about what's happening in their life and the music that has shaped it. You can email me at goodevansbobcast at gmail.com. That's goodevansbobcast at gmail.com if you have questions, comments you'd like me to consider. And you can also rate and review this podcast if you are enjoying them. That would be very nice of you and I would be most grateful. Also, if you would like to hear any of the songs that we have spoken about on any of the 39 episodes that I've made, they are all conveniently located in a Spotify playlist that I've put together called Good Evans, It's a Bobcast Soundtrack. In developing news, I have new music and even some live shows coming up. Can you believe it? I am still grappling with that. Yes, things are starting to happen again. I'm playing two dinner and shows, very sophisticated, in Queenscliff, Victoria. It's just 15 minutes down the road from where I live. Um, But, you know, obviously, hopefully, in the uh, coming months, I'll be able to venture further afield. But at this time, it's, uh, yeah, two shows on Saturday, December the 12th, one of which has sold out. The late show sold out, but the early one still has tickets left. Um, So head to my website, bobevans.com.au, for all the info and tickets and things. Uh, If you live in in the uh, Victoria region... Um, make sure you're signed up to my mailing list uh, or check in on my socials Um, over the next coming uh, week I will be releasing the opening track off my brand new album Um, yeah first new music um, in a couple of years it's been four years since my last album came out and this new record I've made ah, I think it's really really good I'm really happy with it so finally get to um, get to people that can hear some of it, which is very exciting. So yes, in the next week, um, that will be happening. So keep your ear to the ground. All right, my guest on this episode is Chris Cheney, lead singer and guitarist for the band The Living Ends. Oh, I met Chris way back in 1998 when our bands toured together. And he and his band have gone on to become one of Australia's most successful and loved bands. Um, Chris is also widely renowned, too, as one of the best guitarists that this country has ever produced. Anyone who's seen him play live will know that his skill and talent as a musician is just phenomenal. So, look, I think fans of Australian music who grew up through the 90s are going to enjoy this chat. I certainly did. I came away, actually, with a real... A solid understanding of what makes the living in tick because they're a really unique band which is part of what makes them special but that melting pot of influences is something that i find really really fascinating so i hope you do too uh chris is also just a lovely chap and i'm really glad that we were finally able to make this happen um i asked him to be on this podcast probably a couple of years ago now um so we finally made it happen even though because of covid we had to do it over the phone not in person, but that's fine. Uh, travel restrictions have lifted here in Victoria, so I might be able to start doing some more uh, of these in person. But, um, but yes, yeah, so I really appreciate Chris uh, giving me his time for this. I hope you enjoyed the chat. 
Um, here it is, Chris Cheney from The Living End on episode 39 of Good Evans, It's a Bobcast. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I, it's been you asked me to do this quite some time ago, I believe. Um, that is true. Yes. So I apologise for my tardiness, but um, here we are again. No, well, I'm really grateful for you to uh, to say yes to doing it. Yes, it was in pre-COVID times. I guess it might have been a couple of years ago. Um, I yes, one us asked if you could be on it, um, and we could actually, you know, sit down in person and uh have a chat but um but we are doing this uh over the phone as i've been doing all of them this year but that's fine i remember what you look like uh, yes so i can <laughs> well so I, can, like, I look a little bit different in my head. i think during covid i've i've i've, I've metamorphosized into into something else but um you know even with the lockdown you and i live too far away we couldn't have gotten together um that's right with, with the lockdown being lifted i should say <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, well, tell me about tell me about your twenty twenty. How 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 what effect has it had on you? And um, what what plans did you have that had to that got canned? And yeah, what? Oh my what god! Are, what has it done? Well, gee, it's been it's been insane for everyone. Obviously, um, yeah. I started the year. I was living in Los Angeles. I moved. Yeah. I, I I moved there in two thousand and eleven. And came back here in 2018 for yeah. about 18 months, and we decided once we were back here that we wanted to um, sell our house and um, move back to America again. So that's what we did, and I got back there sort of midway through yeah 2019. Right. Then in January, of and, and so so and so, and that was a, you were set on a permanent move you're going to live in the states permanently yeah we decided that we you know that we'd spent seven years there and we loved it and then we got back here and went well this is great too but i think we want to maybe give america another few years but we had we had our house yeah. and everything here so we had to come back and sort of sort sort a few things out but we thought we'll, yeah. well let's give it another two or three five years whatever well it ended up only being for me it was only whatever it was a few months almost and and then i had to come back here at the beginning of 2020 to do the red hot summer tour which was supposed to go from january okay. until uh the end of april right and so we we had about i don't know 12 shows to go or something when the covid thing hit right. and it's quite a story so it happened right it happened right in the middle of the tour it did yeah yeah and it's okay. quite a story because i was about to we were about to fly to cockatoo island to do one of the shows just as the virus was kind of it was all really starting to get serious at that point and i had planned to fly out to los angeles the the day after the cockatoo island show to visit my family just for four days because i hadn't seen my kids for right. such a long time 
Yeah. Uh, as we're at the airport waiting to fly to Cockatoo Island, we get a call saying that show had been cancelled because of weather. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. 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 I think, yeah. So, I, think I, rev- I, uh, I, I do seem to recall hearing, a, a, was it like really strong winds or something like that? Or? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, I remember hearing something about that. Yeah, so, uh, and, the, you know, we'd already uh, lost a few shows due to sort of the, uh, a few weather things going on. But mm. so anyway, I, what happened was just as we we're about to board, we got this call saying, no, the gig's cancelled. And so all the other guys basically, um, I was due to fly to LA from Sydney anyway. So mm. I still had to get on the plane. I kind of waved at them like, all right, I'll see you next weekend, guys. But we're all kind of looking at each other thinking, you know what? This virus doesn't sound good. So I don't think I'm going to be seeing you next weekend at all. And then I flew back to LA the next day yeah, and never got on a plane again and came back to Australia. So uh, because while I, when I landed back in the US, the thing just kind of exploded. Um, and so... So, we, so when, uh, when you landed in the US, did you... How long were you there at all, or did you just come straight back? What? No, no, no. I was there for uh, a couple of months, I suppose. Okay. Um, and yeah, we were sort of umming and ahhing, like you know, it just seemed to be. I was getting quite scared actually at first because it was just it was so unknown, um, and uh, we just sort of thought, well, with because we were renting over there. And we thought if we get locked in to rent here and 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 we can't leave, mm. or if if one of us gets sick, then that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, the other thing was I I wasn't really doing much work over there, and I thought well if I do get a gig, then it's going to be back here. So mm. we basically just made a decision to get on one of those Qantas repatriation flights when we could, and so yeah we we packed everything up again and flew back here and we had two dogs that we had to get fostered out um so it took a few months to actually get them finally back here but yeah anyway landed back in australia and stayed at some friends place and then just moved around until we finally found somewhere and 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 we bought and now i'm settled in but um yeah yeah, it's been suitably mental so we had to do quarantine and the whole bit yes i was going to say so so when you came back to australia and did your quarantine what month are we talking at that point where are we at now middle Um, of the year or something yeah yeah this was like uh yeah i guess it must have been june july and how did quarantine go what was to describe what that's like i'm a victorian as you know and we had to fly into brisbane that was the only flight we could get um and yeah it was it was very strange because just even being at lax it was it was an absolute ghost town at that point when we left um the flight was fairly empty you know there was no service or anything like that you just had to kind of get on there and and just sit i think we got some water um (laughs) um and yeah landed in landed in brisbane and it was just proper sort of military escort and taken to the hotel room um and we weren't given a lot of instructions but it was basically the police were patrolling the hallways, so you know you're just not allowed to leave yeah um and it took us five days, actually. We were supposed to be, what was it, two weeks, I think. Mm. And we were there for five days. And, and I started to go a bit stir-crazy thinking, I can't just sit in this room because we didn't have any windows or anything. 
Oh, my God. And I thought, surely there's got to be a courtyard or something that we can just get out to and just give the kids a bit of fresh air. Yeah. And we rang, rang reception and, um, and the lady was like, yeah, no worries. I'll just put you on the list. And I'm like, hang on, hang on. What do you mean there's a list? They're like, they're, they're, like there's somewhere we can we can go that they never told us. <laughs> so, so the first five days were, were proper, like uh, claustrophobic almost. Uh, but then anyway, the, what did the you do? That, just watch TV? Or yeah, just watch read. TV. And I had a big bottle of gin. <laughs> that, well, that's- uh, that's only going to get you past day two, mate. I mean, what happens yeah. then? <laughs> I know. It was a pretty big bottle. Um, uh, yeah, we just kind of just watched a lot of TV and just you're just waiting for the next meal to arrive. So uh, they Fuck. delivered meals th- three times a day, obviously, and that was pretty ordinary. Um, and you could go out twice a day. So so once we'd sort of figured that part out, you know, we would, we would get up in the morning, have some breakfast, and then try and get some fresh air for a while. But... Um, it was very, very surreal. You know, it's one one of those one of those things that I can, you know, one of those life experience things I can say I've done now. Another one. What about um, America? I mean, as we speak today, there's the uh, the elections uh, have happened. They're still trying to figure out um, who's won. What's your what's your relationship with America? I mean, obviously you, you loved LA. You were all set to go back there for a while. You've done a shitload of touring around America over the years. I know with Living End. Yep. Yeah. What What's your relationship with America? And what are you when with all that's going down with Trump and the election and and the last few years? You know, what What are your kind of thoughts on that? Well, I've got r- such mixed emotions about the whole thing because when we when we arrived back here, I mean, I love Australia and it's always it'll always be home, but we didn't come back here on our terms, and that that really hurts in a way because it took a lot of effort and cost a lot of money to to pack up and move back there a second time yeah and i really loved the place and i really wanted to make a go of it for another few years um and so to sort of end up back here in um in the middle of winter you know and i was thinking oh this is just um you know this really sucks because i i just love i love the lifestyle over there i loved i had some incredible experiences with just um playing with different musicians and um and yeah it was, it was just a really great place great place to live and we just wanted it to give it a you know a little while longer but at the same time everyone you know keeps reminding me well you know aren't you glad you're out of there because it just seems the whole country's going to explode um so it's kind of no place to probably raise children at the moment mm-hmm. um and even if we were still back there well you know, I wouldn't be doing anything terribly exciting except probably fearing for my life. <laughs> yeah, well, let's see. And so, also, you've got the um, like the healthcare situation as well. Like, if you were to get sick, would you be able to access healthcare in America over there? Or no, no. That's that was one of the issues. Is that um, yeah? Why we initially left in the first place was if if one of us did get this virus. Um, we would be in real trouble. So, how do you reconcile that? You know, like loving this city and having these wonderful experiences and making great friends and and loving the lifestyle. How do you reconcile that with all of the, um, po- you know, the political turmoil that's happening at the same time? Um, 
you know, like the what's been going on this year in America is uh, when you, you know, not just COVID, but with the whole Black Lives Matter movement and, yeah. and now this election and Trump, you know, the most divisive, I think it's fair to say, most divisive president America's ever had or certainly in yep. our, our lifetime. Um, how do you reconcile that? It's like, there's, it's like, are there two are they kind of like two places at the same time? Are there two levels of America that are going on at the same time? Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of our friends over there, are, 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 the thing is, we. I feel lucky that we had the opportunity to, to escape and to get out and, and that we, we could always come back here. But we have some you know dear friends over there who are very, very worried, I guess, about where the future is going to lead and just, just what, it, what it all means. And, oh, it's just... Um, you know, before we left, a, a lot of our neighbourhood was all being kind of boarded up, and um, you know the the guy that lived next door to us was he had his gun kind of at the ready, and and it was just really strange because it's kind of like you know being in Hollywood and it's like paradise, yet it was um, you know there was just really dark kind of undercurrent of uh, you could feel the, the pressure building and bubbling at that point yeah. and um, it's really yeah it's kind of hard to watch now to just to just know what what's going to happen next um, well it doesn't yeah, look it's like pretty scary it doesn't <laughs> just, just popping in and looking at the tv just before we chatted i mean it doesn't look like trump's um going to uh concede um no. and yeah, just like seeing him, uh, you know, look, watching, looking at his Twitter feed and seeing how many of his tweets are being um, are flagged by Twitter now that they've got this new policy where, you know, they're trying to kind of clamp down on um, misinformation and all that kind of stuff. And so, but like all of his, not all of them, but a lot of his tweets from the past 48 hours have been flagged as being spreading misinformation and stuff. I mean, I'm like, this is... This is not. Uh, this doesn't look like it's gonna end clean, cleanly. I, and I guess we're all just watching it, going, "What the fuck is gonna happen here?" Um, yeah, I mean, it's so polarizing because I think there's a lot of people. Uh, he's got such, uh, you know, intense kind of supporters of his own that I think they love the idea that that he's not the regular politician. They love they love the fact that he's so bold and so brash in what he does that they think that that's sort of fresh and new and that's that's what they want for the country. They don't want another politician coming in just telling them what they want to hear sort of thing. So it's yeah, it's incredible. You just the amount of people I suppose that have now come out to vote. It's just so there's such a division there that um it's incredible. And I feel like you know, one of the things about America for me was that that land of opportunity and the land of the free and just the American dream and stuff. I, yeah. I, I've always been sort of infatuated with that. And and it just seems like, um, you know, when we were kids, remember, America was just this giant, you know, powerful sort of country. And, and even living over there, I could see when all this was sort of happening, it was like, man, this this place is just unraveling and, and they're, and they're going to have to take a huge dive at in order to probably just to resurface and um and somehow build it back up again if they can at all do that because it's it's just gotten so much worse than you know when we left it was only because of the virus because they were saying that people were dying and then as we landed back here all of a sudden there's like those 
the Black Lives Matter and, and just those in, insane protests and riots and stuff. So it's just one thing on top of another, you know. You you um have always written songs that have been, like with The Living End and stuff, you know, politically charged or, you know, addressing social justice stuff. I mean, right from the beginning... Um, there's been that content in your lyrics where what inspired that was it was it uh, from music that you listened to growing up that also you know did a similar thing lyrically or is there more to it than that uh yeah i think i think it's just comes from um it comes from influences of bands but also just just wanting to see kind of equality and fairness i think as a human being you know i kind of I don't like the idea of of um, the class system and people looking down on other people, and um, I suppose some of it comes from that. Like a lot of our songs are not necessarily political on one side or the other. They're kind of they're more just sort of saying that um, I don't know, like just a fairness thing, I suppose. But you know, I would I don't like to sort of think of it the living end as 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 being political in any way because if you think about some a band like Midnight Oil <laughs> you know they kind of do it they do it properly and they really <laughs> uh, they really stand for something and we, we've uh, or the clash or something and both of those bands I suppose are influences and yeah. the other side of that coin is I, I always felt like if you're going to write a song it's actually nice to say something and maybe make a difference rather than just singing about um, you know a bucket of sand or something <laughs> because um, <laughs> that's a song that needs to be written um sounds like but, a gr- sounds like a grunge song yes yes well yeah i suppose i think one of the things is maybe because the, of the background we came from initially and the foundation of the band which was that 50s rockabilly thing which which really didn't say much you know those even those early 50s classics like tutti frutti and rock around the clock you know they're not very kind of offensive songs they, they're just about having a good time saturday night here we go we're yeah. gonna go out and have a dance and so i think when we were trying to bring different influences in and and uh, uh i discovered other kinds of music punk rock was obviously the the other foundation of what the band drew its influences from um so it was kind of like all right well we're going to have music that's really fun and really fast and kind of um energetic but be nice to actually have some lyrics that we draw from the clash and and the oils and uh so we actually say something as well and and they've got a bit of um bit of clout behind them how did you fall oh how did you find that music particularly the you know the music of the 50s and stuff like does that did you grow up listening to that music how how did you come to find that whole scene yeah um it's still a bit of a mystery to me i don't remember what the defining moment was but because i was into like bon jovi and (laughs) you know this this is in like 84 Five eighty six, yeah. yeah, I suppose. Are, you ta- are we talking slippery when wet New Jersey era? Yeah, yeah. We are. We I was, are. I, I was into that at the time as well. <laughs> of course, of course. The first concert I ever went to was Bon Jovi oh, Slippery wow. When Wet tour, and um, that was a it was a huge moment. Um, <laughs> so, but leading up to that, yeah, I guess I was into kind of top forty stuff. Like, my I had an older sister who always bought like smash hits magazine and she was a, a culture club um, oh, yeah. fanatic um uh tears for fears all that oh, late yeah. 80s stuff I-, I loved it all 
And then something, I don't know, I think I started playing guitar at that point when right. I was about nine or ten or something, pretty young. And I was into, yeah, kind of uh, the hair metal sort of thing. <laughs> and I, I seem to remember a kid at school showing me an Elvis record. I went over to his house one day and he had this, this like greatest hits of Elvis. And I, I guess he must have put it on or something. And... And I remember the cover. I mean, that's the thing that I remember most was the way the guy looked. And I was like, because uh, I kind of knew who Elvis was, but I never, I don't think I ever took much notice. Yeah. And it was just, you know, it was like being hit by lightning or something for me. I just, I just gravitated to that and then, and then started to explore this 50s kind of music. And mum and dad had a pretty good, um, a collection of vinyl records and so i went through there and they had all the early elvis stuff buddy holly's records little richard so i just started listening to that stuff and stopped listening to the bon jovi stuff and as i said it was just when i was starting to play guitar so i started to learn those records and got right into that style of guitar playing because for me it had it had a whole image to to it that was really different to what anyone else at school was, oh, yeah. was yeah, into. Yeah. Uh, it was a whole package, I suppose. It was this kind of rebellious, blistering guitar playing with this, you know, super cool kind of look. So I just, um, from then on, you know, I was just obsessed after that. But your, it your definitely parents... wasn't what everyone else in Wheeler Hill was listening to. No, that's right. I mean, your parents must have been stoked, though, when you, you know, started digging through the record collection and, like, listening to... All their old records. That that might have been a moment for them of like, hey, the kids getting into some of our yeah. some of our stuff. <laughs> it was actually, yeah. I think they always um, they were always you know big fans of of the band, and and I think um, you know that one thing I got from my parents was the um, diversity in um, you know like their record collection was. They had a lot of Rod Stewart, a lot of Elton John, um, Bob Seger, Meatloaf, um, Janis Joplin, you know, all the kind of classic stuff, but then, you know, all this other 50s stuff too. And so so they were all at all their dinner parties and things like that. It was always like Janis Joplin and Neil Diamond and all the classics. Mm. Um, so I kind of absorbed a lot of that too, you know, and that was the thing about with The Living End, people are always think that we started out as this you know total straight up kind of rockabilly band and we did but we also had all these other influences and we used to jam on different styles of music and yeah. and, and play play covers of like the cure and, and bands like that who we also liked you know it was always always mixing it up we never wanted to be a, a straight up kind of you know 50s act kind of thing so i think i have my parents to to thank for that yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you de definitely didn't um, when you came about. Definitely came about as a band that had a lot of different things going on. But like when you were getting into all that fifty stuff as a teenager, you know, that would have been. You're, you're. I think we're pretty much the same age. Um, so that would have been during the nineties, where like grunge was kind of like you know the the the, the dominant sort of you know cultural event or force of. Uh, of that time like you like was there an awareness that like the stuff that you were into um was really really um far and away from what was kind of considered cool and popular at the time yeah well i remember 
I remember being at school one day and I'd bought these um, these leather pointy toe shoes, like <laughs> <laughs> proper proper nineteen fifties um, like cockroach killers or whatever they used to call them, because <laughs> uh, you could get right into the corner. Yeah. I remember wearing them one day and I had my sleeves rolled up and my kind of collar turned. And I just thought, oh, you know, I thought it was the most exciting thing ever. I, this was when I was just just discovering all that stuff and, yeah. and, and the whole image. And I was off, you know, sort of on my own there. And I remember wearing them one day at school. And I remember these guys standing a few meters away and like pointing and laughing and stuff. And I went, ah. Oh. And it was really not a good feeling, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think some people kind of wear that as a badge of honor. They go, "Fuck yeah, yeah, yeah I'm different. Yeah. I'm different to you, and I'm and I'm happy about it." But I think for me, growing up in like, it was a very uh, kind of, you know, it was all about football, and you had to kind of you had to be into the right football teams, and 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 so t- for me to be sort of talking about Bill Haley and the Comets and wearing these pointy <laughs> shoes and, and had this kind of grease and stuff in my hair. Yeah. Uh, I was definitely I was definitely an outcast at that point. But the thing, I, I guess the thing that got me through is that I could play guitar. So, yeah. you know, once I sort of started doing that in the music room at school and people would gather around and watch, I, was, I wasn't sort of the freak. I was kind of like different and perhaps a little bit cool perhaps yeah, i'm yeah. not sure no, but no, absolutely. Uh, it probably sure stopped me from been. getting beat up absolutely i think yeah <laughs> play guitar is definitely a skill that you know no matter you know what what you look like or what you're into or whatever else is going on in your life yeah playing guitar you know is considered pretty much universally cool so yep. Where, did you say you grew up in Wheeler's Hill? Is that yeah, Wheeler's so, Hill. So where? I mean, obviously, it's somewhere in uh, outer suburbs of Melbourne. Yeah, in the eastern suburbs. It's um, it's near Glen Waverley, and that's where you went to school. And that's where I went to school with with Scott actually. And so he, he, his sister and my sister were really good friends in school, and um, they, their sort of group of friends decided one day that they would have like a barbecue with all the families so all the parents could meet each other right uh and that was at scott's house i believe the first time i ever met him and so we were the kind of two little younger brothers that just ended up riding skateboards and stuff around when we were like 10 i think yeah we were at that point. <laughs> yeah um <laughs> and we just kind of clicked even then you know before we even uh played a note together um so we used to hang out a little bit, and I had just started getting guitar lessons, and he was um, he was playing piano at that point. Ah. And, you know, I guess we got to about 12 or 13 or something, maybe, and that's when I was really into the Stray Cats, and I was like, oh, I've just got to start a band, um, you know, and so I showed him a record and said, you should get one of those, you should get one of these double basses. <laughs> um, you know, don't worry about the piano. I want, I want you in my band, but I don't want a piano player. I want a double bass player. And he went, yeah, all right. And he went out and got one. That's like, the amazing. Next day. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, he, so he fell in love with, with this particular record that I showed him. And he calls me up on the phone and said, I bought a bass. I was like, no way. He goes, yeah, yeah, come around. And I swear to God, <laughs> I got around to his house and I've walked into his bedroom and he's got this bass and he's already playing it. Like already kind of slapping it and, you know, it probably sounded terrible 
now <laughs> but back then i thought this is the most incredible moment ever it just it sounded awesome at that point yeah and he was he just gravitated towards he was an absolute natural from the word go and Isn't just that- taught himself through listening to records and watching videos and stuff and that was it we were off that's amazing i can't believe he went out and bought a double uh, like it can't be easy to just go out and buy a double bass right well, you, you wouldn't think so. It's not like you can pop into Woolies and just get one. <laughs> you know, it's often, you know, I, I never see them uh, coming up on like the uh, secondhand, um, secondhand market on Facebook or whatever. You always see guitars, but you don't see too many double basses come up. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's funny I don't remember where he got it from now. It's funny because um, it's a really similar way to how Vanessa became the bass player in Jebediah because... She was a guitarist, like me and Chris. She'd been playing guitar, you know, longer than me. But me and Chris were playing together, and we we wanted, but we really wanted Ness to be in our band. But we, we both play guitar, so we were just like, "Oh, do you want to like start playing bass?" And so, yeah, pretty much like the next day, she like sold her guitar and bought a bass and just started learning bass guitar. That's amazing. <laughs> just destiny meant to be. Yeah. So, so were you um so were you writing when did when did you start writing your own songs and how did you kind of find your way into that side of things well it wasn't long after we um so th- yeah so there, then there was like was it was just he and i that were just sort of jamming on these sort of we would do like Everly Brothers songs, so we were kind of singing as well from from the start trying to do harmonies and things like that yeah um but uh, and we had a drummer from school who uh, was an Iron Maiden freak. Uh, didn't like the fifty stuff at all, really. <laughs> but he, but because he played drums and um, we kind of knew him, so so he was the first drummer of the band, a guy called Shane Jackson. Okay. Um, and I think we started writing pretty early on. You know, I mean, we it was initially just getting together in scott's garage and and just playing music and um we used to have a tape deck there and we'd always record ourselves playing and i still remember sort of listening back to the first couple of things we ever played like that'll be the day i think by buddy holly and maybe stray cat strut or something because that was the you know that was the big band for us at that point yeah and i remember listening back to it and you know you're looking at each other going i can't believe it i can't believe it's us it actually actually sounds pretty good because it's all compressed and it's loud and it's like you know and i still remember that going fucking hell it's not half bad you know um, I've still got that tape somewhere too. Oh wow! Um, and I think it was very shortly after that that we yeah we started sort of dabbling in um, writing our own tunes as well because I guess even from the beginning we sort of we thought that maybe you know we could make a go of it and that we we didn't necessarily want to just be a cover band sort of forever yeah. but. And so was I mean, that. That was it. Was a long time before we ever, you know, released anything. Yeah, yeah. So it was. I, so I mean, really, that that's, the, that's kind of the start of the living end in a in a sense, I suppose. Oh, it was. Yeah. And this is where, this is like ninety one. Wow. Yeah. So we we our first gig was, I think in in ninety one, at the Richmond Club Hotel, in Swan Street, and um, it was pretty much yeah maybe six covers and one one or two originals at that point but it's been we've been on that same same path sort of since then um of just trying to throw all the things into the melting pot and 
but I, I feel like it's the same band, but yet we've lived a thousand lifetimes right. since then because we just used to play um, like occasionally good gigs like that, but most of the time we would do like people's weddings and 21sts. And oh, wow. we, became, we became like a sort of party band. We would, um, so we had like, I don't know, 200 cover songs that we could oh sort of rip God. out. Wow. And, and, and pretty much learned to sort of to read an audience at that point whether it was we used to go and play in this little front bar in Mildura which was just really kind of rough and ready sort of crowd and then we could play someone's wedding the next night and play all the kind of you know all the standards and keep people on the dance floor and yeah you know like a cabaret act almost but uh, I think I think it helped with when it came around to sort of writing our own material and having that more general broad appeal we knew how to read an audience early on and we knew what worked and what kind of didn't and i think it's it all contributed to you know making us probably who we are today yeah absolutely I'm, i bet it did isn't it that's yeah, it's funny like how you know how like such varied like influences and just general life experiences can all play these small kind of parts in forming yeah like who you are and what you what you want to do and what you're good at and it can come from the most unlikely kind of places like do you think learning all of those like learning so many covers and playing a lot of covers doing those kind of gigs like how how do you think it kind of affected your writing when you came to writing your own stuff like do you think it um helped make you a better writer and in, and if so in what, what kind of way well, I think early on, you know, going back to my parents again, my first sort of musical memories were them playing uh, with these, actually, these car trips to Bathurst. We used to go to Mount Panorama every Easter oh. to, there used to be bike races up there because my dad used to race motorcycles when he was younger. And I remember being in the car listening to Little River Band. Um, that was at them and Air Supply. And Dr. Hook were the oh, yeah. three ones that I remember them just playing over and over and over again. <laughs> um, and very melodic bands, all of them. And I think, you know, you absorb things so much when you're a kid. And I, I loved, and I still do, all, all of those bands and their music. And so I think, even without really knowing it, that, that I kind of... I don't know, I gravitated towards finding a hook in a song and anything that's, that's really pop and, and has you know, great harmonies and stuff, is, is that's just what I find most appealing in music. Um, you know, like uh, the style is one thing, but, but for me it's like it's all, about, it's all about the hook really. So I think yeah. that was always in there. And then I think the other, side of, the other side that was very important when we started the band was all the music that we were trying to play was very clean. All that 50s stuff... And some of the 60s, there's, there's, it's not really affected. You can either play or you can't. You know, there, it wasn't like highly distorted or, or super overdriven. It was, it's very clean kind of guitar playing and very flashy. And so we worked our asses off trying to sound like those records and to play. And I'm really glad that that was, that was kind of our introduction to, to being musicians was trying to copy those mm. sorts of records, as opposed to just. Um, Oh, I don't know, like playing, 
playing ACDC or something where it was just very basic kind of chords. Like we were right into all the finger picking and the country yeah, kind yeah. of bluegrass, bluegrass stuff and all that. But so, so that was kind of. Then you'd go on you know, to combine that with punk rock, which is, you know, trades, to, totally trades in simplicity, you know, technical simplicity and, and you know, is, is more sort of invested in, I guess, in attitude and energy. But technically, you know, one of the defining features of punk rock is just how simple. It is, and they are so. You know, so it's it's interesting that you kind of they're in a sense on a technical level. Anyway, they're they're kind of coming from two different worlds, aren't they? They are. Yeah. I mean, in the punk scene, it's very very uncool to be able to play. <laughs> you know, yeah. anything anything more than two or three chords. But well, that's the Sex Pistols' uh, fault, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. <laughs> I, I mean, that's the thing for me. The punk rock stuff i mean I, I like some of it all the bands that that couldn't really play who are like i was saying before is it's all style and no substance i, yeah. I just don't have any time for it i'd rather listen to um um oh god i don't know i'd rather listen to pavarotti or something yeah than than that but um i think i think that what we tried to do was i don't know you just sort of find that balance between having something that's really amazing musicianship but not you know because i hated like all the sort of the prog stuff because i went to box hill tafe and did a two-year jazz diploma course oh wow and yeah and it was great but there was a lot of incredible musicians there but it was so boring it's like <laughs> so we were always trying to find that balance yeah between yeah. you know being able to really play but of course then we yeah, I guess we took the energy from punk, but but yeah, it, it was always sort of finding that balance, and then putting harmonies and stuff in too, which again in the punk world was kind of like, you know, you don't have harmonies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's. So, what point did what you were doing as the living end, um, and you're fusing together all these different kind of influences and writing your own songs? But you, you know, you're talking about sort of doing your, your weddings and doing all these small gigs and stuff where, you know, you were sort of outside this kind of the, the I don't know, the, for want of a better description, the Triple J kind of cultural world landscape. At what point yep. did what you were doing start to kind of click with a, with a broader kind of teenage kind of audience? I mean, how did that happen? I mean, I know I can remember from the time it happened really fast, but... Yeah, you know, but what, yeah, well, what are your memories of that? Well, that's the funny thing because we did seem we sort of arrived um, really suddenly, but as I've just said to you, we were playing thousands yeah, of gigs yeah, yeah. since I, since '91, and and I just I think we got to a point in oh, in about '95 or something where we just sort of thought it probably wasn't we weren't really going to get any further because I think by February '96, we had um, we'd done a bunch of demos and stuff, but I guess it didn't really start to get anywhere until we did the Green Day tour in '96, and that was after you know we said this story a million times, but after we sent them basically a demo, and we got we got hand picked out of however many bands sent them stuff you know to tour with them on their tour in february of, of 96 and we had just done 
I think we had just recorded Hellbound, which was our first EP. Yeah. And we sent them like, um, I think it was even a tape at that point. I don't think we'd had CDs pressed yeah. by this point. Yeah. We sent that to them. Anyway, somehow we got that tour and we ended up going on this national tour with them. So we went from playing to... <laughs> I don't know, 30 or 40 people or something to, to playing Horden, you know, multiple nights at the Horden Pavilion and Fuck. stuff, which was incredible. But no one knew who we were and they didn't care. It was, it was you know, Green Day was so big at that point that the, the audience was just, all they wanted to see was them, including us. Like, we were fans too. I was a massive um, Green Day fan. Um, yeah, 96 definitely still would have been, I, I read sort of 94, I think Dookie came out, Dookie came out in 94? Yes. Um, so yeah, I was in year twelve then, and I loved that record. I I um, just yeah, there was a period of time I reckon in '94 where that band and that record was my favorite thing. Like, yep, I listened to it it's, all it's the time. Classic. Those songs are just so fucking catchy, one after the other after yeah. the other. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I was uh, yeah really into them at the time. So I mean, fucking hell, that must have been crazy to be like playing such massive shows handpicked by Green Day um, I suppose all those fucking gigs that you've been doing though you were probably ready you know oh yeah yeah we could definitely play and and they they really liked us which which helped and um, so yeah we sold um, that EP ended up doing sort of okay but it was the next EP that we put out which was called It's For Your Own Good which had From Here On In on it and that was the first song that got played on on Triple J yeah but prior to that you know I remember doing shows with I think we did some shows with Blink-182 one time and maybe this is long before that and um, yeah the audience just used to stare at us like you guys are (laughs) fucking you guys are horrible like you, you, you look like the kind of band that my mum and dad listens to. Well, that's, I mean, that's it. So that's what I've got kind of really fascinated about is like when that transition happens. Like you've been doing this thing for years and years. And so yeah, you know, like what I said before, it happened really quickly. Obviously, it didn't happen really quickly. But something must have clicked where you went from being that band that kids stared at going, you guys look really strange and your influences are not anything like what I'm hearing to going yep. to, to all of a sudden being right in the middle of the fucking cultural zeitgeist in australia yeah yeah like that must have that clearly you know kind of occurred in the space of a year or two um i mean where do you put that down to is that like just getting on to triple j is that the culture changing and sudden and you being suddenly sort of the culture kind of kind of went more towards you rather than you going towards it like how do you explain i i think we we definitely it looked like we sort of rode on the coattails of that that punk rock explosion of the of the mid nineties. Um, we definitely we could definitely identify with that, and people found something in the energy of our band that they didn't see in other bands. Yeah, just just the look and the double bass and just the other influences that we have. But I think doing that tour with you guys, the split personality tour, that was ninety six, right? No, that was um. Oh no, that would have been like ninety eight. That was after. Slightly Oddway came out. Slightly Oddway came out towards the end of 97. And so that would have been right at the beginning of 98 um, when we did that tour together. And I often, um, when I think back on that tour, I wear it with a badge of pride that I've got a feeling that that was probably the last time you ever supported another Australia band. <laughs> uh, apart, from, 
apart from ACDC, but that doesn't count because they're yeah. international. But um, right, because you know, I, I, you know, always remember that that time because you know you guys were really blowing up. Prison of Society was out by then and was huge. Um, right, and you know, we had to go on stage after you every night, and it was you know, that, which was quite. Um, you know, quite. Uh, no, I wasn't nerve wracking, but it definitely made us work harder. You know, like we we watched you every night, like just whip the crowd up into into a you know a crazy state, and we knew that we couldn't. We like we had to play as out of our skins every night if we were going to hold our own. You know, so I think it was really good for us. We probably really needed that, um, yeah, right. but it was a but it was a yeah, it was a it was a pretty incredible time like, watching it happen, and I think you guys weren't signed to a major label at that point, so you were being courted as well yeah. a lot. Yeah, because um, the because Prisoner was on, we put out an EP uh, through MDS, which had Prisoner on it, but we didn't have anything lined up for for the record, which we were hoping to you know obviously make after that. So that yeah, that's when it started to get sort of really crazy. I remember watching you guys though. Like it was like, yeah, we had Prisoner, but it was, it wasn't. I don't remember it being that big at that point, maybe. But I remember I, you I guys think it had was. a full. It was, oh, was it? Yeah, I don't know. You know <laughs> what? It probably, it probably, um, obviously, it had a long life, and it probably went on to get much bigger than it was at that point. You know, it definitely wasn't at its peak then, but it was definitely all over the radio and everybody knew it and it was you know it was becoming uh, a massive song yeah. but um but yeah it, it probably you know went on to uh, keep growing and growing long after that tour yeah well it was it was amazing but i but i, I think you know getting back to your question I, I you know i remember how hungry and desperate we were and and how frustrated we were for a long time Mm. Just thinking, what what's it going to take to get something on the radio? What's it going to take to get people to come and see us at the tote? You know, we we could get we could get a hundred people, hundred and fifty people, maybe, but it just never seemed to be getting any further. And this went on for a couple of years, you know. And we would we just sort of would get quite sort of. I mean, it just made us work probably harder. But but I definitely thought, no, nah, bands like us, you don't get. You don't get to that next level. You know, it was bands like Custard mm. and Regurgitator that were the, the big ones, you know. And I just sort mm. of thought, no, nah, people just, we're too, it's too stylized. We're too, we're too much part of this kind of counterculture scene, this ska, rockabilly, rock and roll, blues, jazz. We came from that, that sort of thing. And that shit doesn't get played on Triple J. Um, yeah. Um, and I guess yeah, then the being so feeling so different and being so different to everyone else, like what you were saying before, when it did, when the penny did kind of drop and the thing, mm. the whole thing clicked, it was it exploded like bigger than what we ever imagined it would. Because yeah. I think every kid was like, oh, I love this band because they're like no yeah. one else that I know. So me thinking we're never going to get it. It's it's like you know, like anything that happens where it kind of there's a real there's a real sort of um, point where it just kind of you know uh explodes is is when you just when you're the when you're the outcast i guess and then uh, all of a sudden it becomes the 
becomes the in thing. Um, all right, so let's get on to talking about the, your your three songs, Chris. Uh, you've been very generous uh, with your time, and we're getting close to an hour, so um, we'll talk songs now. Okay. As people who listen, as people who listen to this podcast know, um, the 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 background to this, it's kind of it's just become you know three songs of my guest choice. It can be based around any kind of theme or any anything that you want. So. Um, so first of all, is there a, is there a theme that you've kind of based your choices around? Not not so much. Just just the last sort of three that I happen to be kind of listening to, and I guess shows some um, just shows some of the sort of diversity that um, you know I still kind of try and listen to different styles of music and and get influenced by it all. Really. All right. Well, three most recent songs. That's a that's a theme. That's still a theme. Um, all right, so what's uh, what's the first one? Uh, the first one is the um, Johnny Burnett Trio, which uh, are one of those bands from the 50s, and they were very uh, entrenched in the kind of raw rockabilly thing. You know, this is when you have basically a couple of guys standing in a room with probably one microphone, like Sun Records, and just laying it down. But, yeah, the Johnny Burnett Trio are responsible for some of the most sort of raucous, um influential kind of very influential i guess in in the punk rock kind of rock and roll um for a lot of rock and roll bands um because yeah it's just really really raw and really powerful and um yeah he unfortunately died in a in a boating accident i believe johnny burnett but but they didn't make that many records but the ones that they did make are all amazing and i think zeppelin were very influenced by them that was the kind of stuff they were listening to as teenagers yeah right so what um what song is it oh sorry um uh what did i oh lonesome train Knowledge of uh, this genre of music is extremely poor. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. What, it's probably fifty six, fifty seven. I think. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. You know, and they didn't really have any sort of bigger commercial hits, but they um, they were a bit a bit too kind of raucous, I think. But um, yeah, just the, this is one of the bands that you know, if you in the rockabilly kind of scene, you know, the, these guys are kind of gods. Just. Just, just the licks and stuff that they kind of play is is just that perfect hybrid of, of country and blues and rock and roll and hillbilly and it's just kind of you know, it's probably probably one or two takes they did and, and that was it. When I listen to music like this, um, 
you know not being somebody who's really well versed in it um there's for me the the emotion or the the kind of feeling that i get from listening to this stuff is just like a big wave of nostalgia um something about you know listening to music from the 50s and 60s when i have when i put it on whether it's like in my car or just hanging out at home um there's a real warm nostalgia that i get from that well i guess it um you know i mean it's hard to imagine a time when it wasn't old music isn't it you know i mean there was once upon <laughs> yeah, a time right. this was this was the this was the latest release and I, I think i think the thing for me that always why i always sort of hark back to it and 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 why it will always be the foundation of everything that that sort of came after is is just the 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 heartbeat of it is is the emotion is um it's just so real and it's yeah it's i mean everything's been built built on that obviously obviously extending sort of the the blues before that but i think um yeah that's why it's timeless it just doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to age you know it's just it's beyond a fad or a or a trend because mm. it's it's just so it's so real yeah yeah absolutely there's a yeah an authenticity that is just undeniable um with that kind of stuff especially when you you know are, are now in a position to kind of compare it to the following 70 almost years of uh, contemporary music that has come since yeah um yeah that really shines through that authenticity i reckon um cool all right what, what's what's next uh what else did i put on there oh i put um a uk band called doves and yeah. uh it's, it's their i think it's their latest song just called prisoners many years ago I really really dug it um, uh, but but I was actually I hadn't heard any of their stuff for ages so um, 
I wasn't even aware that they'd put new music out this year. I kind of just assumed that maybe they'd broken up. Yeah, I think they might have. I'm not sure, but I think this is the first album in 11 years or something, maybe. All right, okay. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just They're just one of the bands that I kind of gravitated towards. I've always been a huge fan of, of en- English bands and English songwriting. I don't know. Mm. It's just something, it's a way that they kind of put stuff together. And it's, I find it different to a lot of American groups. I, I just find more often than not, a lot of my influences have been uh, English, sort of from yeah. from the sort of the punk explosion onwards. Um, actually, no, not punk explosion onwards. It would be, you know, going back to Beatles stuff, really. I mean, yeah, the, the yeah. 50s stuff for me is a lot of the American stuff. But, yeah. But, um, but yeah, anyway, so... It's just cla- it's just classy kind of songwriting, and they just um, there's a dance thing about what they do because they used to be a, a dub band or something. They used to be ah uh, yeah, that's right. I remember yeah. that hearing that story when they first came out. Yeah, they they came from the dance scene. That's right, and then started a guitar band, which yeah, was really kind of like you know the opposite of what most people were doing at that time you know it was at a, at a time where dance music was exploding and a lot of people with guitars were starting to um head more into an electronic direction so yes That's i right. remember that because i found it really really quite peculiar yeah yeah and you would sort of think that i don't know it's, it's probably a bit of a misconception but but people that put together dance music music and electronic music perhaps aren't that sort of um, deft with, uh, you know, nice melodies and, and, and good chord progressions and stuff. But yeah. um, but these guys are, you know, it's, it's like they just have this... Um, I mean, I don't know how it all sort of happened, whether they just put the synthesizer down one day and picked up the guitar and discovered that they had this whole other kind of ability to write these amazing pop songs and... Um, quite organic sounding i guess mm. but you, but you can still hear that dance influence in everything that they do and 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 everything just just hits that bit harder yeah i wonder if um if it was for whoever you know was the is the main driving force of the band um or all of them i i wonder if it's like a, like forming a guitar band was harking back to what they were maybe doing before they got into dance music um maybe they yeah i'd be interested to know if it was like they if they were maybe instead of doing something new maybe they were kind of going back to what they were doing in the in the, when they were really younger yeah kind of revi- revisiting it or something you know yeah you know you're saying you're always gravitated towards english music yet you know with your music is had that really strong 50s american rockabilly influence as well so again it's like just joining together really um really kind of uh particular kind of influences i mean i've always been into american uh, you know, music, like I got into, the, I was a massive Nirvana fan and all that kind of stuff, grunge and everything. But at the same time, loved like the Stone Roses and Blur. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, with Jebediah, you know, we always felt like it was very much a mixture of those two things plus all the Aussie stuff that was happening at the time. But with you, like you're, it's way more specific than that. It's not like a general kind of thing. And I guess that's kind of, gives me more of a kind of sense of an idea of yeah like how what the living end is and how it came to be like they've they're they're a mix it's a mixture of a lot of different influences but they're really 
specific ones, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I, I, I sort of felt like there was a time there where we didn't get a lot of credit when we first started out because we were playing to these crowds that were we were playing with with other bands like um ska bands and blues bands and punk bands and they were and that's all they were whereas we would come on stage and we would sort of have little bits and pieces of all those bands and play it mm. and i think people were a bit confused at that point they were sort of like nah <laughs> nah don't do that don't do that just just sort of do the one thing and and even when we started really bringing our own songs into the set the crowd that used to come and see us at that point were basically would, would sort of quite openly say nah nah don't 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 play your own stuff just keep just play the covers you know because our own stuff was it had this new wave kind of edge to some of it and and had yeah. all the influences that you can hear now and they they didn't want that and so i feel like i was always kind of like but but why can't you i mean my favorite music was always the melting pot it was that's how yeah. you know the best rock and roll music was always mixing different things together and seeing what you come out with and so it yeah. was almost sort of disheartening at first um but i knew that if we could break through that scene you know and then that's how songs like from here on in i think ended up getting on triple j because it was like well it's a really sort of beatily kind of pop kind of chorus but it's like a psychobilly mm. verse and it's got this kind of country kind of guitar playing and and it, it just <laughs> it, what happens is it just comes out sounding really really fresh so but yeah. i but i never understood why you, you know that's what every band should do i think you know there's, there's, no, <laughs> yeah. there's no point just just copying something else yeah i guess a lot of people growing up um just don't have that range of influences i mean like for me uh, I was thinking about this actually before we spoke. Like when I was in my early to mid teens, I listened pretty much exclusively to music that was being released at that time. I only listened to n new music or music that had been released in the last several years. Yeah. I didn't listen. So this is in the sort of early to mid 90s. I didn't listen to anything from the 80s or earlier at all it wasn't until i got into my late teens early 20s that i really started to broaden my horizons and start going back and digging going back to the 60s and that's when i started getting into the beatles and and then and digging, looking into other genres of music too you know getting into like um like uh r&b and and hip-hop and just discovering all the different stuff but but yeah it wasn't, wasn't until my late teens that i really started to kind of go searching yeah um so i think a lot of people yeah just don't have that diverse range of influences at a young age i, I don't think well i remember hearing your um what was your ep um which what was it called again it had a song about an elephant ride what's that song oh. about? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's called uh, tracksuit tracksuit yeah yeah the, the ep the ep was called twitch it was our first ever recording it took us two goes we recorded it once in this shed with these dudes in perth and it, it was just terrible and then we signed to that's when we met john o'donnell and we signed to murmur and then they put us into the studio to have another go at crack at it <laughs> yeah um, yeah because he yeah. showed me that he showed me he said oh you're like this band and i loved it because i thought this sounds like quality english songwriting and it was that song <laughs> i remember that song. i think i told you that on the split personality too i was like oh i like the elephant ride song um, <laughs> but i'll never forget that because like, uh, i could hear then you know like what you were saying with just the different influences and um mm. yeah 
I loved that tune. Oh, thanks, mate. But that's funny what you say about recording it twice, because when we recorded <laughs> when we recorded the Prisoner EP, yeah. we spent all day recording. And what used to happen, that was at Birdland um, oh, yeah. in, in, in Chapel Street at that point. And Lindsay, who was the producer, well, he, nev- he would never arrive until sort of the end of the session. You'd kind of track <laughs> all day with the engineer, and then he'd come right. in at the end, you'd go, okay, now, now, now play it down and let me hear what you've been doing. And was that, uh, was the engineer Mikey? Yep, um, it was. Because yeah. uh, we recorded the Jokes of Attention single uh, with Lindsay Gravina in that studio as well in 96. Wow. Um, yes, and I just remember, uh, just there was this, we used to, tease him about a, something he said once about um he's saying uh, you know something like um now giving us an instruction like um now you know maybe tune your guitars if you haven't already done that and then he said and mikey just roll a spliff if you haven't already yeah. done that <laughs> <laughs> that's him yep well, well anyway stream. Oh, it was well he well, he <laughs> rolled in at the end of the night and i'll never forget because he was like okay let me hear what you've done and mikey was like Ah, oh, there was some sort of problem with the tape machine, and it's like I don't have it. it. It hasn't worked. It hasn't recorded or something, or I've lost it. And we were like, "What the fuck? What do you mean you've lost it? Like we've been recording all day trying to get take after take after take, making it perfect, and it was like, no, nah, it's gone." And so either Lindsay or Mark, I guess it was Lindsay, said, "All right, oh. we'll just go in, go in and redo it." replay it so we went in and i think we did like one or two takes of each song and that became the ep oh fuck yeah so (laughs) which is either a blessing or a curse i I don't really know what those other ones ever sounded like but you got to put it down as being a blessing right because it all worked out but well yeah i mean there's an energy on those songs that i guess we were just like oh jesus angry here we go quickly let's (laughs) let's just let's get it down again and um and having played it all day, I suppose we, we were familiar enough with the arrangements. <laughs> <laughs> no, I reckon you would have maybe just tapped into just that next level of kind of anger and just <laughs> with the songs of having to fucking do it again. Yeah. Knowing that it all yeah. been lost. Yeah. So, did, so did you track a lot of that stuff um, live, like all together? Yeah. Yeah, we did actually. Um, not, I don't. I don't think the vocal, but um, yeah, I yeah. think on that EP there was like three or four songs, I think. And yeah, we had to redo them again at like 11 o'clock that night. Um, all right, last song, Chris. What have we got? Last song is The Killers. And I just heard this song a little while ago. I think it's one of their, one of the, off their new record. And um, oh, I just love it. I just love this style of songwriting. Um, I just think he's, he's fantastic. Um, it's just, again, just quality kind of hooks and chord progressions it's just really smart but um i just i just love these guys have you loved them for, since they first came out yeah and not so much in between there's been a few things that i haven't liked but um mm. but this song which is blowback um uh it's just i don't know it, you know sometimes i hear songs and i'm just like oh i wish i'd written that one you know? <laughs> She's reaching for a backpack Puts out a cigarette and gets on the bus She's sitting on a secret She didn't ask for, no girl ever did But there's a whisper in her heartbeat She can hear it just enough to keep her alive When she's breathing in the blowback 
There's nothing you can offer She ain't already tried But she's breathing in the blowback Born in the poor white trash And always typecast But she's gonna break out Boy, you better know that It's just a matter of time She fights back A good man is a mystery, she's looking for clues Whoa, you better check that, buddy You know, it just, just has these nice little changes Because I've been working on my solo record for a while You know, you kind of, I'm in that writing mode So I'm kind of always, you know, things, your, your ears prick up when you hear certain things you know, Oh, that's nice, oh, that was good how they did that And just gives you give you little ideas but um yeah i think i think he's brandon flowers is a pretty pretty talented guy how long have you been working on a solo record for uh quite a long time more longer than i would care to sort of say but, <laughs> um just due to various circumstances um i recorded in 2016 in nashville did a whole record and i've sort of scrapped half of that and i've written the other half basically during this covid time well, why been, what ha, why did you scrap half of it because i wrote better songs yeah right okay so you just weren't yeah. sat, just weren't satisfied yeah i've just kept writing and um just been sort of chipping away at it and just all of a sudden yeah there's half the records now been shelved and um yeah i'm really happy with it so i've just got to just trying to figure out the next step from here and when you who did you record it with in nashville i had a band there just of all nashville session guys session guys amazing yep yep who are all younger blokes which was good it wasn't uh you know i mean it would have been great to do a record with all the old you know country sort of legends but um yeah i used to uh just some players there that my producer recommended and so there was like i don't know five or six tracks with full band pedal steel all that and then a bunch of just acoustic and vocals as well awesome so um yeah it's pretty mixed bag yeah it's just that place is just i've made a couple of records there and it's the the amount of awesome musicians that live in that city is out of control it's just amazing yeah so easy to find people to play oh that's exciting how close do you think you are to sort of being ready to put it out well it's just being i've got the last couple of songs being mixed as we speak um and i don't know it's it's sort of we're trying to make plans in a in a time where no one's making plans so it's pretty hard yeah. um it's pretty hard it's pretty hard but uh, i think just in, in in the next in the next couple of months really at the start of the new year i'll be um getting it out there yeah i've always i've always sort of been envious of you being able to do that you know being in the band and 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 all your prolific solo output you know it's taken me this long to finally do something <laughs> outside of the band but i don't know each to his own i well, suppose you, we're well, all doing different things exactly exactly well that's a good i'm glad that you mentioned that because the last thing that i had my extensive notes as, my, as you can probably tell i write extensive notes before these uh before this podcast but the last thing i wrote was uh new stuff to plug question mark question mark question mark um, so that's cool because there's possibly a solo record uh, there around, is. around the corner. Um, yep. 
What about uh, have you got much of an idea about um, live shows next year for the Living End? Is there anything sort of in the pipeline for next year? Well, we've got Blues Fest uh, booked in, and that's about it at this point. Yeah. Um, so fingers crossed. You know, we just get back on track by then. Um, if we don't, we're all in trouble, of course. Um, but yeah. But um, yeah, we just got to wait for the next announcement, don't we? Yeah, I, I haven't done a gig since. Um last weekend of February um, and I think well it looks like now I've just found out pretty much in the last couple of days that um, I'll be playing a show in December just at a little bar close to where I live up, um, on the Bellarine Peninsula so yeah it's going to be it's going to be a strange feeling playing a show again it's been a long it's been a really long gap in between gigs um, so yeah, just thinking about that makes me a little bit, uh, yeah, <laughs> a little bit nervous. It's like, yeah, I, I mean, I'm hoping that it'll all, you know, once the show starts, it'll all just like come come back and um, and be really easy. But until I get to that point, I don't really fucking know. I know it's, it's just... funny, isn't it? I, it's, you get you get nervous, sort of thinking about it, like, yeah. geez, I don't even know if I can still do that. Yeah, how do I do that? <laughs> but I'm, you will, you'll get up there and just like riding a bike yeah hopefully all right thank you so much chris for doing chatting with me today i really appreciate you giving me that time thank um, you and yeah looking forward maybe uh maybe we'll uh jebson living end will find themselves on the on the same stage at, uh, at some point next year at a festival awesome. somewhere Who please knows? please <laughs> all, all right. right thanks, thanks heaps, boss. man